It's my joy to add my welcome to you this morning as well. My name's Kevin, and I get to be a pastor here as well. It's my call to lead us in, um, into the scriptures this morning, and so I'm going to invite you to take a copy of the scriptures. If you uh, brought one with you, that's great. There should be one under a chair close to you. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe you have a copy of the scripture on your phone. You could swipe there. Um, Ephesians 2, if you're using one of the Bibles on the chairs in front of you, it's on page 1037. We're continuing our series um, that we're calling The Church. Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 11. Let's attend to the reading of God's word. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our sermon series, we are looking at these rich pictures that the New Testament paints of what the church is. And therefore, because of what God has made the church to be, what the church ought to be about, what the church should be prioritizing, and what should characterize the church. And we're talking about the church. We're talking about more than this local, this local church. Called, we call it Cornerstone Community Church. We gather here every Sunday. We scatter out into the Niagara region uh, all week long. We are a local church, but we belong to a much wider local church. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in one holy Catholic church, one holy universal church, one church that exists across cultures, across the generations, the people of God through all generations, who, those who are united to Jesus through faith in him, who become part of his church with local expressions. And so we gladly uh, participate with and cheer on brothers and sisters from other denominations or non-denominations and brothers and sisters around the world and uh, those who will come after us and those who have come 
before us. We are united together as the church. So the, the Apostle Paul, especially here in this passage, he paints a couple of pictures, actually. Where he talks about being members of God's household. That's what our focus is this morning, members of God's family. But he also then he continues on and he starts talking about the temple. That's our, that's our theme next week. Uh, but we've seen already in this, uh, in this series how the New Testament talks about the people of God or the, the church as a body. That individually we are members of one another, members making up one body. And the, the teaching really that comes out of that is that there is a unity, that we are a collective whole. We're meant to be a collective whole. And there's diversity, right? We each have different gifts, different experiences, different parts, different roles to play. We saw last week how the church is the bride of Christ, which is a teaching that calls us to fidelity to Jesus, to, that he would be the object of our deepest love and our deepest loyalty, that we would not have any other gods before him, that nothing would come in front of that relationship, and so that together we are in this relationship of love with Jesus, our groom. So this morning, the church, as members of God's household, members of God's household, again, like every other picture, this picture is based on what God has already done. God has adopted us as his children. You read about that in Ephesians chapter 1, actually, that he, in Christ, we have adoption as sons and daughters of God, that he has welcomed us into his family. He has become to us a father. That is the great teaching revelation of Jesus. He comes and says that God isn't like only like a king. God isn't only like a judge. He's like a father to us. And so Jesus invites us to pray to God, our father in heaven. Jesus has come to reveal the father to us. And we, we become his children through adoption, through faith in Jesus. He adopts us as his children. So what do you call a group of people who all have the same father? It's not a trick question. We're siblings, right? Brothers and sisters together. Be, through the adoption, be, because Jesus, through Jesus, we have adoption into God's family. God is our father. We now together are brothers and sisters. In this text especially, God is teaching, God is teaching us that through Christ, he is making a brand new, a new humanity. He is restoring humanity to the intent, what he intended when he created us. If you look again at verse 11 and 12, there's this, there's this hostility. There's this divide among people, right? Remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. So he's writing to Gentiles. He's saying, you were Gentiles. You were uncircumcised, and there were those who were circumcised, the Jewish people. That was done by human hands. You were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, the people of God. You were not part of God's people. You were foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. There was this hostility in the world between Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people had God's law. They had God's revelation. They had the sign of the covenant and circumcision. They were, they were taught how to live as God's people. 
Of course, in the series, we've looked extensively how Israel failed to live into that calling to relate to God and represent God in this world, and they became proud instead. Instead of being humbled by God's revelation to them, they became proud in the world and looked down on those dirty, unclean Gentiles, and they despised one another. There was this hostility. That hostility comes up twice in this passage. There's enmity, this despising of one another. Now, you and I may not think in Jew-Gentile categories very often. I I suspect most of us are Gentiles, um, though there may be some of us who have Jewish heritage. But the principle is this, that we take something of, of God's grace, we take a gift of God in our lives, a good thing that he has given us freely, not because we're awesome, but because he's great and generous and good, we take that gift of God to us, and we elevate that thing to be of ultimate importance, of supreme value, and then we look down on those who don't have that same gift that we do. We make that gift of God's grace the source of our identity, our self-worth, and we then look down on and despise those who are different from us. And that might be your ethnicity. We may take great value and self-worth out of our ethnicity, or maybe your hometown. I live here. I live in this neighborhood. You live on the wrong side of the tracks. It may be your race, it may be your ethnicity, it may be your political persuasion, it may be your education level, it may be your affluence level, but we take a good thing, a gift of God in our lives, we derive our self-worth, we take our identity from it, we elevate it to this level of importance and we look down on and kind of despise those who are different from us. You can see, we see this, I see this in the broader North American church. I pray to the Lord that it doesn't infiltrate us, but there's rise in Christian nationalism in the church, and and, and related to it is this teaching called kinism, which is uh, has a root word kin, but where you give great preference to those of your own kin. It's racism, um, where, you know, interracial marriages are forbidden, and And really this, we should cloister together and be around people just like us, who look like us, talk like us, have the same culture as us, and and kind of cloister together. This teaching is actually on the rise. But if you would hear God's word in this passage again, just again, think of how this passage alone just destroys that kind of teaching. In Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. What hostility? The hostility between different groups of people. He put it to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit 
to the Father. So then you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, members of God's family. One new humanity. What this text is teaching is that most central to your identity is the truth that you are a child of God. That more central to your identity is not where you're from, not what family, what family of origin you come from, not where you live, not your education level, not your affluence level. The most core piece of who you are is that you are a child of God. And that reality melds us into a family that transcends race and kin and education level and affluence level and where you're from and where you're going. That becomes the most defining feature about us, that I am God's child. I am a member of his family. He's my father, and these are my brothers and sisters. You see, for the early church and for many, many followers of Jesus today, to become a follower of Jesus, to join God's household To give your allegiance to Jesus meant ostracization from your family. It meant to be shunned. You would be disowned by your family. And therefore, you became very vulnerable in society because it is your family who looks after you when things go south. And what Paul is teaching, what we see throughout the New Testament, is that you have a new family. You're not on your own in this world. So much of the New Testament is about Paul taking up a collection from various churches to support the Jerusalem church who is suffering in famine and and through persecution and the family of God scattered around Asia Minor rally together to support their family members. You are not on your own in the world. You have a family. You're not all alone. So that's what God has done. He has united us in Christ into his family. That has some implications for us. Two broad categories of implications for us with a couple of points under each one. That's a way of sneaking in like six points into two. It's a little preacher tip. Uh, The first is relationships. First of all, relationships and transparency You see, in a family, there's no facade. There's no faking who you are in a family, right? Your brothers and sisters, who you grew up with, if you had some, they know what you're like. Your parents know what you're like. There's there's no faking it. There's no pretending. There's no pulling the wool over the eyes of your brother. He knows how selfish you are, right? He knows what you're like. In a family, we open up our lives to one another, and we're known. We're known in our family. In our family, our family is where we're most truly ourselves, right? Where we're like, okay, when I go out into the world, I kind of got to put on a bit of a facade. I got to have my stuff together. But a family, you can relax. You can kind of take a breath. You can be yourself. Transparency in relationships. Accountability in relationships. It means we're a community. It means we're a family together. It means we represent one another. 
Now, community can be a buzzword, right? We all want community. I just want a church with community. I want to live in a community. Well, that's great, but a community without accountability is counterfeit community. Uh, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book Total Church wrote, people are often enthusiastic about community until it impinges on their decision-making. For all their rhetoric, they still expect to make decisions by themselves and for themselves. You say, well, you know, what I do with my time, what I do with my money, what I do with my sexuality, that's, that's between me and God. Well, no, it's not. It's not about you and your God. It's about us and our God. And we are a family together. And, and how you, what you do with your time and what you do with your money and what you do with your sexuality actually impacts all of us. And so when, when our conduct in the world brings shame and disrepute on the church, that becomes all of our business because we go out and we represent one another. I know some of us in our homes have like a, a little saying above the door as we leave, like, remember who you represent when you leave this place, Right? And that's the, that's the reality, is that as we go out into the world, we represent one another. Because we have the family likeness, we have the family name. And so we have a responsibility to call one another to deep loyalty to Jesus, to walk in his ways. So transparency and accountability in relationship. And then thirdly, unity in relationships. Families are messy, Amen. Relationships with your siblings are complicated. Anyone who, lo- if you're around, you're like, oh, that family, though. They got it together. No, they don't. I'm their pastor. They don't. <laughs> they don't. It's messy because we're sinners. We say really mean things sometimes, and we do things that are really selfish, and it doesn't go over well with our siblings. Families are messy. Problems and conflicts show up in families without fail. But the thing, see, health, the difference between healthy families and unhealthy families is not the presence and absence of conflict, it's how you deal with it. The difference between a healthy and an unhealthy family is not whether there's conflict or not. Because it's, it's, every, it's in every family, there's going to be conflict. The, the difference is, Will you, re- will you deal with that conflict in a healthy way or in a toxic and unhealthy way? And so as families, we are committed to working through things together. And I would say on behalf of your pastors, we are committed to walking with you through conflict. Some of you have no idea how committed we are to that. But know that we're there for you to help walk you through this. Families are messy. Sometimes, though, families are toxic. And families aren't safe. And we need to create safety and some distance. And so, as your pastors, we're there for you, too. Okay? To help decipher between the two. To know, is this a conflict we need to work through? Or is this a situation we need to get safety from? All right, and that's not just, I'm not talking only about your particular little family, I'm talking about us too. Relationships. 
The second category of things I want to talk about is, uh, is a word that's going to seem really negative, but that's because of our cultural baggage. It's the word obligations. As we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. We have obligation to one another, to care for one another in our times of need. A family is there for one another when needs arise. You know, Paul was writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and he talks about supporting widows who are truly in need. And he deciphers between widows who are truly in need and those who aren't. The widows who aren't truly in need have, have kids and grandkids, and he says, let them look after them. There's an obligation. In families, we have an obligation to care for one another when we're in times of need. So what does that look like in the context of a church? It means giving. Giving of our time. Giving of our resources. Committed to meeting one another's needs. Like the early church, Acts 4.34, it says like there was no needy person among them. Because people were selling their stuff and giving, giving so that there was not a needy person among them. We're there to give spiritual, emotional, material help in times of need. So as a, as a pastor of this congregation, I'd say, man, like actually, like we're, we're pretty good at that. We're, we are there for one another, I think, by and large. Not perfectly. You know what we're not as good at? Receiving, relying on one another. In times of need, say, yeah, I do need help. It's humbling. It ought not be humiliating, but it's humbling to receive, to, to, to admit, you know what, I'm not self-sufficient at this time. I need my brothers and sisters to help me. To, and so to ask for help, to receive teaching, to receive guidance is challenging. Church is a family. And so if it means that kind of relationships, transparency, accountability, and unity, it means obligations of both giving and receiving help, the reality is that is going to impinge on our freedom. That is going to impinge on our freedom. We are conditioned to believe that freedom, to be free, means that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, how I want to do it. Right? We think that's freedom. If I'm truly free, then I can do whatever I want. I won't have to do anything. I can just do it my way. Maybe some of us think about like winning the lottery that way. Like, well, if I could just like get a couple million, then I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. Then I'd be free. I was um, putting the youngest member of our family to bed this week and was reading from a little devotional by Sally Lloyd-Jones, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. Let me read what I read to her this week. The title is Foolish Fish. What if a fish one day decided, I've had enough of being told what I can and can't do and only being allowed in water? I want to be free I'm going to find my fortune on land and then jumped out of the water and onto the riverbank. 
How far do you think that foolish fish would get? It would wriggle and flap its fins, but of course, fins don't work on land. It would lie there gasping for air, and pretty soon it would be dead. How free is that fish on land? Not very. The fish is not built for land. And we are not built to be away from our Heavenly Father. Sounds silly, but there is a rise in this equating of liberty and freedom with this ability to do whatever I want, to make my individual choices. And that, for that to be coming equating with Christian ethics, that that's, that's what, you know, Christ has set me free so that I can do whatever I want without concern for the community. We saw this in the pandemic, frankly, where many Christians were unwilling to surrender individual rights to do what they want for the good of the community. Now, before you jump all over me and woke COVID fear-mongering Kevin, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, we're not debating the effectiveness of different restrictions on freedoms and all of that. But the principle of, no, 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 I am unwilling to surrender my individual rights to do whatever I want for the good of the community. That principle was at work. And that principle is not Christian. When you are part of a family, you lose freedom. Necessarily, you lose autonomy. When you get married, you don't get to spend your money however you want, guys. You, you have to let her know when you're coming home. You can't just show up whenever you want. You lose autonomy when you get married. And then you have kids. I had a friend, I don't, I don't think he's here, but I'll, he'll remain nameless, who expecting their first kid and said, well, this kid's not going to really slow us down that much. <laughs> to which every parent said, yeah, <laughs> okay. You lose freedom. You lose autonomy when you're part of a family. You lose autonomy, but it leads to true freedom because it's where you're meant to be. You're meant, we are meant to live in community, in a community that's like family, in a community that impinges on our freedoms, our autonomy. That's where flourishing is found. It, it leads to flourishing. It leads to freedom. In a gospel family of diverse and united people, Submitting to the will of God. Finding real freedom. In a family that walks through trials together. Bringing the stability that a family brings. To keep on trusting together. To keep on going together. That's where freedom is found. Even though it may feel 
like I'm not quite as free to do whatever I want whenever I want. When you have relationships that are transparent and accountable and united, and where we live into the obligations of family, of both giving and receiving help, we live into that vision that God has for us as our Father who's adopted us as his children to be brothers and sisters, to be this new vision of humanity that can love one another well across differences, that can love one another well across differences of socioeconomic status, that can love one another well across differences of race and ethnicity, that can love one another well across differences of generations and age, that can love one another well regardless of whether you live in Niagara Falls or St. Catharines or Virgil or Old Town. <laughs> that can love one another well across all kinds of differences because what has united us is stronger. We all have access by the same spirit to the Father. It said the blood is thicker than water, but the Spirit binds us closer than them all. This passage in Ephesians chapter 2 comes after Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 ends with this prayer, and Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would know how great is his power at work in us who believe. I want you to, he's saying, I, he's praying, Ephesians followers of Jesus, Ephesian brothers and sisters, I want you to know the power of God at work in your life. I want you to know how great the resurrection power of Jesus at work in your life is. And then he works it out. Ephesians 2, the beginning, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. You were dead in sin, but he's made you alive. Individually experience God's grace. Come, submit to the lordship of Jesus. Experience God's forgiveness and reviving work in you individually therefore the church Ephesians 2 2 that's the that's the that's the structure we have to read this scripture in context he's praying I want you to know God's grace and power at work in your life therefore experience his grace and therefore live in the church as a family that's how you'll come to know God's power God's resurrection power at work in you living life in relationships and obligation that leads to true freedom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you seal these words deep into our hearts, those things that are true, those things that are beautiful, those things that are good, those things that are of my flesh, when they, they fall aside, and may what you have for us lead us, Lord, lead us, into, lead us in faith, lead us in repentance, lead us in the way of walking with you and walking with one another to follow after you in the company of a family. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.